Good morning, Grace. If some of you are perceptive, you might notice that uh, that little graphic that we've been looking at the last uh, week of Passion Week with the seed in the earth um, dying and then sprouting the, the head of wheat out there, uh, the, the word has changed, but the image is still the same. And we're shifting for the next five weeks to a little mini-series before we move on uh, to preach through Titus this summer. Uh, and we're calling these next few weeks Revealed. Um, we read in 1 Corinthians 15 this morning, Paul says, I, I handed down these things that I consider of first importance. And his list doesn't stop where we might expect. We maybe can tend to think that the story of Jesus' first coming, uh, the resurrection is kind of the, the, the finale of it. But he says, no, these things of first importance are not just that Jesus died according to the scriptures and was buried on the, and then rose again on the third day according to the scriptures, but then and he appeared, and he appeared, and he appeared, and he appeared. He appeared to Peter and the 12 and to over 500 eyewitnesses over the course of about 40 days, and then he ascended to the Father bodily, visibly, and these things are significant, um, and they're connected to the resurrection, and so uh, last year, we took four weeks after Easter Sunday uh, to just take four weeks to consider the significance of the resurrection for the Christian life, and we loved it so much that we wanted to do something similar this year, so we're going to linger. For one thing, it lets us sing more Easter songs than just Easter. Last Sunday, I got home after church, and I saw Maddie Parker, or she had sent me an Instagram. She was uh, forcing Caleb to listen to a YouTube video of, of Hallelujah, Christ Arose, because we didn't sing it last Sunday. She had to get her fix of that song, and I was so happy to tell her this week, we're going to sing it today. So anyway, so stay tuned. In the next four weeks, we're going to continue in the Gospel of John 20 and 21, because he records these... some of these appearances of Jesus this morning uh, to Mary Magdalene. Next week to the 12 disciples, uh, uh, in two weeks, this interaction with Thomas in particular who refused to believe unless he could touch and see for himself and Jesus invites him to do that. And then on the fourth week, this beautiful, tender uh, uh, sort of reunion of Jesus and Peter where he restores Peter after Peter had denied him three times. And finally, on the fifth Sunday, we're going to observe Ascension Day, Ascension Sunday, and consider the significance of Jesus' ascension to our Christian life, which it is significant. So that's what Revealed is all about with that graphic. Um, so turn to John chapter 20. Verse 11. Let me read our, our scene today. Appearance number one. Because remember, last week, uh, John and Peter got to the tomb and they saw the empty grave clothes and John believed, but no one yet so far in John's gospel has seen the risen Jesus. Mary gets the, the privilege. Let's read. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look inside the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they've taken my Lord away. I don't know where they've laid him. And having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing. But she didn't know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him and I'll take him away. 
Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and she said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which is teacher, which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. If you weren't here last week for Resurrection Day, Eric preached, and at the close of his sermon, he read a powerful reading by a pastor who was reflecting on the, sort of the parallel between Good Friday, Holy Saturday, the day in between when all of his disciples thought that was it and, and didn't expect the resurrection, and then Easter Sunday. And he, this pastor likened that to this age that we live in now in between Jesus' first and second coming where we're still in a broken world, it's still under the curse, but we have resurrection hope. And he likened this day, this age that we live in to Saturday. And so his, the reading began like this. It said, Friday is when your dreams died, when, when life, the, the brokenness of living in a fallen world hits us uh, with the, the cold reality of the world is broken. Sunday is when God will do more than you ever dreamed, but Saturday is the seeming eternity in between. And the point is, in that, to one, recognize honestly, life in a fallen world is hard and, and we will suffer and there will be weeping, but resurrection hope and, and Jesus being risen changes everything and it tells us that Saturday won't be forever, but Sunday will be forever. But I want us for a minute to back up from that again as we enter into this story, this scene with Mary, and try to imagine what if Saturday is all there is? What if you didn't have resurrection hope? What if there really was no one who had power and authority over everything that we fear most, over all the things that hurt most, over all the things that cause us to weep? What if there wasn't one who could say to disease and disability and demons and weather and death, be still, you're finished, game over. Because for Jesus' disciples and followers, I think that Saturday just felt like Friday, right? That Saturday didn't feel like Sunday's coming. No, it just felt like dreams have died. And the thing is, Jesus had tried to prepare them for this. A couple of weeks ago at our Maundy Thursday service, Jeff Hubbard beautifully read for us from John 13 through 17 this, we call it the farewell discourse. Jesus gathers his disciples for this last Passover meal and, and is preparing them. And the first thing he's preparing them for, John 16, verse 16, he tells them, a little while and you will see me no longer. And he's talking about his death and burial. And then he says, and again a little while, and you will see me. So he's preparing him for that Saturday experience. He says in verse 20, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. I think the world he has in mind right there is like in John 1, the world that was made through Jesus and yet didn't know him. He says, you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn to joy. And then John 16, 22, you have sorrow now, but I'll see you again and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. Your sorrow will turn to joy. 
And last Sunday, we saw that moment sort of dawn on John and Peter, even though they hadn't seen Jesus yet, right? John saw the grave clothes and it said he believed. And they left, not understanding everything that the scripture had said. And they're still not, not entirely sure, but that light had dawned. But here in verse 11 through 18, for Mary, it is still Saturday, isn't it? She still believes Jesus is gone, dead. The Gospels are very clear that while every, all the disciples seemed to scatter and Peter was off denying and Judas went out and hanged himself, that Mary Magdalene and a few women, they stood by at every... They, they watched Jesus crucified. They stood and watched as he gasped for breath and hung there in agony as crowds taunted him. They were standing by watching. They watched as he said, it is finished and breathed his last. They stood by at a distance as Joseph of Arimathea asked for the, the, the right to take Jesus' body and, and bury it in his own garden tomb. And they stood and watched the place that Jesus was laid and they went and prepared spices to come back later and, and, and add to the burial process. If anyone knew how gone Jesus was, it was this woman, Mary Magdalene. She, 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 he was gone. She watched him buried. And now here in this scene, he's doubly gone, isn't he? As, as far as she knows. Now she thinks she's been robbed even of the ability to come and mourn the death of her teacher and Lord at the place where his body was laid because it's gone. She can't even do that. And she's distressed in this scene. Um, if last week's scene was marked by running, she ran to Peter and John, and Peter and John ran to the tomb. This one is all about weeping, isn't it? Four times in this, in this story, weeping, weeping, wept. Her sorrow has not yet turned to joy, but we get to see it turn to joy here as Jesus reveals himself to Mary. And she becomes the first one who can say, I've seen the Lord. And I want to remind us here, John tells us why has he recorded these stories? Why has he collected all the stories that came before of Jesus' miracles and his teachings, but also these eyewitness accounts? Why has he written them down for us? John 20, verse 30 uh, and 31 says this, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which aren't written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. He's the son of God and that by believing you may have life in his name. And so Mary's story here of seeing the risen Christ is here so that we might listen to her eyewitness testimony and rather than dismiss her as a self-deluded woman who was just wishful, wishfully thinking her Lord back into existence had actually seen Jesus alive. And he wants you to believe that there is one who has power and authority over the things you fear. And there is one who can, will say to death, will trample over death by his own death, has done that. He wants you to believe that that Jesus is alive and is sitting at the right hand of God and is going to come again one day to judge the living and the dead and every eye will see him and every knee will bow before him and declare that he's Lord, even though right now every knee does not bow and declare those things. That's why John has this story here for us. That's what I'm praying would be true of all of us having been in this passage this morning, that you would believe and have life in his name. 
So here's how I want to do it. I, I, I have three points I want us to get from this passage. I want to see in this passage. I want to work our way about halfway through, make two of those, and then finish the, kind of the, the rest and, and have a third there. So let's just dive into the story. Verse 11. Starts with a but, because Mary's experience now is not quite what Peter's and John's is yet. They are now beginning to rejoice over what's happened in wonder. But verse 11 starts like this. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. So apparently she had run back. She had seen the the stone rolled away in the dark. That's all she had to see to conclude Jesus' body's been stolen. She takes off. She didn't look inside the tomb yet. It was too dark. She gets to Peter and John. Peter and John race back, race each other to the tomb. And apparently they have not seen each other since. And Mary now is back at the tomb and she's alone. And it says she's weeping. It's a strong word. In John's gospel, it happens in two places. At the tomb of Lazarus, as Jesus arrives too late, and the whole funeral party is there wailing and mourning his death. That's the word weeping. That's what Mary's doing here. And it's the word Jesus told his disciples in that upper room that in that little while when you don't see me, you will weep. So that's what she's doing. Here she is at the tomb and she's weeping. And it says, as she wept, now it's light enough, she stooped to look into the tomb just like Peter and John had. But as she looks in, she sees more than Peter and John had. They saw the empty grave clothes and the face cloth lying there. But God has something a little bit more here for Mary. She saw, verse 12, two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain. Remember, she'd seen that spot before as Joseph laid his body there. And now she sees the spot and here's the grave clothes and there's an angel at the head and an angel at the feet. Now, this should have told Mary a couple of things. It it should have immediately said, this is not the scene of a grave robbing, (laughs) right? Folded, you know, face cloth over there to the side, the the, the grave clothes just laying there empty right where Jesus had been laying. I mean, if someone had stolen the body, wouldn't they have just grabbed him and, you know? And angels should have said, "Uh, Mary, God has something to do with this. Right? Angels don't just appear all the time. I mean, angels are there. But it says something, I think, about how blinded with grief she is here, right? She's not thinking rationally. Think in the Bible, almost all the encounters where someone, an angel, appears to them, what usually happens? They're afraid, right? The angels have to say, whoa, whoa, whoa. They fall to their face in, in fear or in worship or both. And the angels have to say, get up, don't fear, it's okay, And we don't get any of that in here. She sees two angels in the empty tomb and it doesn't faze her. So verse 13, the angels say to her, woman, why are you weeping? I don't think that they're asking for an answer. (laughs) They're not wondering what is the reason. It's sort of a, I think, combination. It's a gentle rebuke and correction and it's a word of comfort. It's like they're saying, Mary, there's no need to weep. (laughs) Don't you get it? Don't you see the empty grave clothes? This isn't a grave robbing. This is, this is a day to rejoice. Why are you weeping? Time for weeping is over. But she doesn't get it. And so she says to them, they've taken away my Lord. I don't know where they've, they've laid him. And I, I, I imagine the sort of desperate urgency. It made me think of moments where I've been in a crowded place and all of a sudden I've lost one of my kids for a second. Any parents ever had you know, those moments or at Disneyland or a few years back, a church picnic at Ralph Clark Park? My son Levi 
It was just gone. And for about 15 minutes, Betsy and I are running in two directions all over the park, like frantically looking for them. And people are trying to tell us, I think I said, I, 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 I can't even listen to what they're saying. And I'm moving. I, this is sort of like Mary. These angels say, why are you weeping? And she says, I don't know where the body is. And it's almost as if that's, she doesn't have no more time for the angels. And she turns here, verse 14. Having said this, she tur- she's leaving them. She's like, they, they don't have answers. I'm going to go find the body of Jesus. And so she turns around, and now she sees Jesus standing, it says. But she didn't know that it was Jesus. We, we might read that and just go, come on. I mean, she had followed Jesus as, as, a, as a follower. Jesus had cast seven demons out of her. Jesus was precious to him. I mean, she'd seen him, and she, you know, how could she not recognize Jesus? And commentators have, you know, speculate. Well, maybe, she, you know, she's just blinded with grief and tears in her eyes, and her eyes are blurry. Maybe the sun is just up, and it's still a little bit dark. And some of those things might be the case, but I think there's something going on here that's more than just that. Because later in John 21, Peter and seven of the disciples have a similar experience. They're out in a fishing boat and Jesus is walking along the shore and it says uh, uh, in John 21 4 they didn't know it was Jesus at first there was something about his appearance that they didn't recognize in Luke 24 Jesus appears to these two followers who are on the road to Emmaus and he's talking with them and it says their eyes were kept from recognizing they're walking right along Jesus and Jesus is explaining to them sort of how the law and the prophets are all about Jesus and and and, and they don't see it I wonder if part of what's going on here is that Mary's not looking at a resuscitated Jesus like Lazarus had been, right? Lazarus was just resuscitated only to then die again. We don't know when, but unfortunately, Lazarus was going to have two burials. But this is different. Jesus isn't just resuscitated. He's been resurrected. This isn't the same sort of body. He now has a glorified, resurrected, imperishable body that can't decay and can't wear out. The sort of body that that we are promised, all those in Christ, he's the first fruits of. (laughs) He's sort of like, he's sort of the the display model of the bodies that we are going to be given at our resurrection. Philippians 3.21 says this, where is it? that God will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body. So G- Mary's looking at this glorious body of Jesus now. Listen to this from 1 Corinthians 15. Paul gives a little more light on this, this, this thought of what, what, what is the difference between our resurrected bodies one day and, and the bodies that we have right now. And he likens it to a seed as well, kind of like our, our image here. He says, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 35, Someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? We wonder that, right? What's this new body going to look like? He says, you foolish person. I don't know why he says that. It seems like a very good question to me. (laughs) But he says, no, you foolish person, think. He he says it's kind of like a seed. What you sow doesn't come to life unless it dies. And what you sow isn't the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen. And a few verses later, he clarifies. He says, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown, the body that will decay and die and be buried, um, he says, uh, is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness, but raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. 
which doesn't mean an invisible body or a ghostly body. Like if Mary had just gone like this, it just would have passed through Jesus. No, it's a real physical body, but a spiritual one. Louis Burkhoff, theologian, says it's a body adapted to the spirit, perfect instrument for the spirit now. A perfect physical body to be paired now with the spirit. Charles Hodge said it's a body with no, I love this word, decrepitude of age. Decrepit means, you know, worn out from old age and feeble. He says, no, a body, no decrepitude of age, no decay of the faculties, no loss of vigor, but immortal youth. Immortal youth. Our own resident theologian, Alan Gomes. Are you here, Alan? Maybe next, third, third service. He says, it'll be a body full of health, life, energy, empowered by the Spirit of God. It will be indestructible. So I wonder if compared to the last time Mary's seen Jesus, he looks a little different. The last time she'd seen Jesus, he'd been beaten to a pulp. He had actually come to look as Isaiah 52 had prophesied about the suffering servant, that his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. That was the body she saw wrapped and buried in that tomb. And now standing before him is something quite a bit different. Maybe we understand a little why Mary might not recognize Jesus. So verse 15, Jesus speaks to her and says, the same question, woman, why are you weeping? And then she, he has a second question, who are you seeking? I think it's an invitation for her to stop for a minute. Hold on, Mary. Who exactly do you think it was that was buried in that tomb? Who did you understand him to be exactly? But the question's lost on her. She's got her theory and she's sticking to it. And so it says this, supposing G- him to be the gardener, <laughs> she said to him, sir, if, if you've carried him away, uh, tell me where you've laid him and I'll take him away. I almost picture she's turned to Jesus now and he's asked these questions and she's not even looking at him. Sir, if you've carried him, where, where is he? I mean, if you have him, I'll, I'll go bring him back. Remember that this tomb was in a garden. That's why she thinks it's the gardener. John included this detail back in chapter 19. I love this. John 19, 41. In the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. Isn't that fitting? In a garden is where everything went wrong, isn't it? In a garden is where Adam failed and Eve failed miserably and sin entered the human race and it's been passed to all of us. And and the, the garden is where God gave the curse and drove them out of the garden not to return until the day when one would come and crush the head of the serpent. And now Mary's looking at the one, Jesus, the second Adam who's come and right nearby a garden, crucified in our place, conquering death, removing the curse from our head and was laid to rest from his redemptive work in a garden tomb. He is way more than a gardener. But she doesn't get it. And so verse 16 Jesus says to her, Mary. This week I've been reading, reading that verse out loud. Try to imagine, how, how did he say Mary? Mary, Mary. She's looking all around. Mary, over here, Mary, Mary. But he just says her name. And it's like the lights come on. And she turned. So she, apparently she turned away from him. She's not even looking at him anymore. Mary 
And she turned and she says to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, teacher, the title that she'd referred to him as for years. All right, I want to pause right here. Two points. The first one's really obvious, but it's the point of this account as it is the point of each of these appearance accounts is this Jesus is alive. He's really alive. He's not alive in Mary's heart. He's not alive in the memories of the disciples as they tell them. He's literally alive. He's alive in the breathing, standing right in front of Mary, looking like a gardener kind of alive, right? That's the crazy thing. Although this resurrected, glorified body, but he still is human, enough to be mistaken as the gardener. He's alive. You know, an Easter song that we haven't done at Grace, but years ago we had Shy Lin here at Grace on a Thanksgiving service, and he shared, I don't know if you've ever heard this, Shy Lin is a Christian hip-hop artist and a pastor, and he wrote this song years ago called Jesus is Alive to just drive home what is unique about the Christian faith and what we believe about the one who is the object of our worship. Listen to this. This is just some of it. Actually, let me teach you a little part. Jesus is alive. Do that. Jesus is alive. Okay, you're ready. That's your part. This is just part of his song. Plato is dead. Socrates is dead. Aristotle and Immanuel Kant are dead. Nietzsche and Darwin are dead. However, Jesus is alive. He goes on. Buddha is dead. Muhammad is dead. Gandhi and Haile Selassie are dead. Elijah Muhammad is dead. However, Jesus is alive. There's more. Nero is dead. Constantine is dead. Genghis Khan, Attila the Hun, dead. Alexander the Great is dead. However, Jesus is alive. How about these? Pharaoh is dead. Cyrus is dead. Darius, Sennacherib are dead. Nebuchadnezzar is dead. However, Last one, Caesar is dead, Herod is dead, Annas, Caiaphas, Judas, all dead, Pontius Pilate is dead. However, that's the first point. He's really alive. He's standing in front of Mary, and now she recognizes him. One reason this passage is included is she's an eyewitness and we're supposed to understand an authentic and reliable eyewitness. Her testimony is to be believed. And one of the reasons, marks of authenticity on this story in particular, I think, is it's just the opposite of what is frequently a a common claim to discredit some of the eyewitness accounts in the Gospels. They were just self-deluded. They just wanted it so badly they, they saw what they wanted to see. But think about this story. It's completely the opposite. Mary is not a woman who so desperately wanted a resurrected Jesus that she deluded herself into thinking that the gardener was Jesus. It's totally the opposite. She is so utterly unexpecting a resurrection. The idea that the Jesus she saw beaten up and buried in that grave could actually walk back out of that grave and talk to her again was so outside of the realm of possibility to her that not only seeing the empty grave clothes and two angels and even the resurrected Jesus, she still didn't quite have room for that conclusion. Even then, she was not easily convinced And maybe you are not easily convinced. And John wants you to hear her story and say, listen, this isn't a self-deluded woman. These disciples weren't just seeing what they wanted to see. They were seeing the last thing they ever expected. And when they finally realized what they were seeing, it changed everything. 
And John wants you to hear her testimony as you're sitting in that chair this morning and move from a place of unbelief and doubt to belief and having life in Jesus' name. There are things John wants you to believe about Jesus because of her testimony and the testimony of the Gospels. These are some of them. John wants you to believe Jesus was not just a great teacher. He was not just a great moral leader. He was not just a really great or the last prophet God sent. Jesus is God himself who entered into humanity by taking on a real human nature, becoming one of us so that then he could do business with God in our place, both living the righteous life that we all owed God and have failed to live in our place and then going to the cross and enduring the wrath of God toward him as our innocent substitute, bearing the guilt of our sin and removing that wrath forever so that we never have to face it. John wants you to believe that because he's risen and he's alive, which now attests to everything else he's said and done. It's the guarantee of it. He wants you to believe that because Jesus never sinned, that's why he could walk back out of the grave because death, like we sang last Sunday, in vain forbids him rise. He laid his life down and he could take it back up again and he has. John wants you to also believe that the empty tomb and the risen Christ are the proof that God accepted Jesus' sacrifice, his payment of himself in the place of us. The fact that Jesus is risen is God saying, it is finished. That is acceptable to me. That doesn't have to be paid a second time. And John wants you to believe all of that then and receive Jesus the way you ought to, as a gift of grace, realizing God has done for you what you never could do for yourself and you will never, no matter how long God gives you on this earth, repay him. Jesus is done. And he wants you to throw yourselves into the arm of Jesus, arms of Jesus as, as, as your Savior and as your Lord this morning. And the second point I want to make goes hand in hand with this. Number two is that Jesus calls his sheep by name and they hear his voice. I love that detail here in, in, in the way he reveals himself to Mary. Because earlier in John chapter 10, he records Jesus giving this extended teaching about himself where, he's, where Jesus says, I'm, I am the good shepherd and my ministry is like that of a good shepherd. And listen to what, what happens with the good shepherd and his sheep. John 10 verse 3, the sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and he leads them out and the sheep follow him for they know his voice. That faith and receiving of Jesus comes in response, Jesus is saying, to hearing the voice of the good shepherd calling your name and responding accordingly. I love, Mary didn't recognize Jesus at first. He, she didn't even apparently recognize his voice at first. She's, he's asking these questions. But the moment he calls her by name, Mary, it's like the lights go on and her unbelief vanishes. And there's belief. And she's able to say, I've seen him, the risen Lord. He calls Mary from sorrow to joy by name. And if you look further in John 10, verse 16, Jesus said this. He says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. And they will listen to my voice. This is going to happen again and again and again, even after Jesus has ascended to the Father throughout the history of the church. Jesus is calling his sheep by name throughout the world. Through all of our grace partners around the world, in Chad and in the Middle East, 
and here in La Mirada and Cal State Long Beach and, and everywhere in between in Africa uh, and, and in India, Jesus, through his church, as we proclaim this good news in the power of the Spirit, Jesus himself speaks through this gospel invitation. It's the voice of the good shepherd saying to you, even here in this morning, this morning, calling you by name and saying, come to me. Come to me. In fact, that might be happening for you this morning. I, I believe as, as we each week do our best from God's word to present to you who Jesus is, what he did, and why it mattered, based on the testimony of those who heard him and saw him, Jesus is speaking through us. That's not me being full of myself. It's not me. But Paul himself says, we implore you on behalf of God, be reconciled to God. And as you are considering who Jesus is, if for you this morning, in your mind, you're beginning to see it and say, I've, ne I've never considered anybody like this Jesus. And these things that the Bible says he did for me and that they said that they saw and why he did those things, that is amazing if that's true. I need help and a savior like that if that's true. If that is dawning on you, Jesus is calling your name. He's calling you by name and saying, believe these things, receive me and have life in my name. I beg you this morning to not uh, dismiss Jesus as a figment of Mary's imagination, but as the God-man who died for you and rose again and is going to return to bring all those who've trusted him into glory with himself forever. I would love nothing more than to talk with you about that after this service, as would any of our prayer team who are going to be on either side of the room at the close of the service. Let's finish the story here. So the light is dawning on Mary and she realizes Jesus is alive and she addresses him as teacher like she had always addressed him. And then Jesus says something next that I think tells us her understanding of what all this means needs some correction here. That She doesn't quite get it. Look at verse 17. We don't expect this. We expect maybe a big hug. But Jesus says to her, do not cling to me. Literally, do, do not touch me. Cling to me probably is the sense of it. Probably, like in Matthew 28, records the women as they saw Jesus falling at his feet in worship, touching his feet. Maybe that's how Mary Magdalene was, was clinging to him. But regardless, Jesus says, don't do that. But it's not because touching the risen Jesus is off limits because in just a couple of uh, sections ahead, he's going to see Thomas for the first time and he's going to actually invite Thomas, come touch, touch the scars. Come put your hand right here on the side where they stabbed me and see and stop disbelieving but believe. So it's not that you're not allowed to touch the risen Jesus. But with Mary here, the, the, whatever manner she's sort of in this moment is clinging to him, tells Jesus she doesn't, she doesn't quite understand. He, he says this, don't cling to me for I've not yet ascended to the Father. So I'm not, I'm not going to disappear, Mary. I'm not going to just poof in a vanish. I, I, I'm back. But he says, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to your God, uh, my God and your God. I think, I think the point here of don't cling to me is, is Mary, I think, is just overjoyed that Jesus is back. He's back. In the same way they were all overjoyed when Lazarus was back. I think she was imagining, we can go back to how things were before. My teacher's back. I can hear his voice. 
I can, I can continue to be with him and see him and eat meals with him. Everything's going to be okay now because he's physically present. For a while he was gone and that was really scary, but now Jesus is back. And it's a sort of clinging like, okay, now I'm not ever going to... I mean, think about what her dominating focus in this whole scene has been. Where's the body? Where's the body? Where's the body? Where's the physical presence of Jesus? And now here he's back and it's like, I'm not letting you go, right? And he says, no, no, don't cling to me because it's not back to things as usual. Now maybe she didn't understand because she wasn't in that meal where Jesus with his disciples had prepared them for this, but we call it the farewell discourse for a reason because he was saying to them again and again, guys, I'm not going to remain with you physically for long. Here's the third point this morning. Christ in us is better than Christ physically present with us. And we need to believe this. If we, if we would believe this, and, and as they believe this, this is an amazing truth. Christ in us is better, actually, than Christ among us. In that farewell discourse to prepare them for his, his uh, impending ascension and, and this, this age after that until he returned, again and again, he said, John 13, 1, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. Verse 3, knowing that he had come from God and was going back to God. He says to the disciples, chapter 14, verse 28, if you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father. You would have rejoiced that I'm leaving. Chapter 16, verse 28, I came from the Father, I've come into the world, and now I'm leaving the world and going to the Father. And then he prays out loud in John 17, and twice in their hearing prays, I'm coming to you, Father. I'm coming to you. And in right in the middle of all of this farewell discourse, he tells them this, Chapter 16, verse 5. I am going to him who sent me. I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go. If I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. He said that to people who had actually enjoyed his physical presence and the awesomeness of hearing him teach and seeing his miraculous signs. And he says to them, it's actually better if I don't stick around physically, but instead send the helper, the the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus, to indwell you. This was the, the heart of the mystery of God's redemption plan all along. You know that verse in Colossians 1, Paul says the mystery that's now been revealed in Jesus' first coming is not Christ physically present with you, the hope of glory. The mystery revealed is Christ in you, the hope of glory. That was the end game. Not to just have Jesus back with us, but in us, indwelling us by his spirit so we don't have to envy people like Mary or Peter uh, or John because they had the privilege of seeing Jesus and touching Jesus because what we can experience right now in this room by the Holy Spirit, Jesus is saying, that's better than if I was just standing in the room with you all but not indwelling you with the helper. As I've been meditating on this reality this week, just thinking, do I live as if I believe this? I think maybe the term helper, sometimes we can think of that just little, a uh, helper, you know, like your kid helping you with chores, you know, but it's not really helpful, you know. But the helper with a capital H, man, we need help. And he is with us. And if we lived with the constant, confident awareness that I have an intimate presence of the risen Christ with me right now that's greater than if he were just standing next to me, 
I was thinking about this at the most ordinary moments this last week. One morning, I'm laying in bed, and kids are already up, and I hear arguing down the hall, and I'm pulling the pillow over my head to just sort of drown it out, and I hit the snooze one more time, and there were some things that day I was kind of dreading, not looking forward to. I was procrastinating. I'm laying there in my bed, and, and this passage is in my mind, and I'm thinking, the risen Christ is present right here, right now, indwelling me by his spirit in a more real way, in a greater way than if he were just standing here in the room with me. And he's here indwelling me to, to make my prayers known before the Father, interceding on my behalf to the Father, to strengthen me and to help me walk into this day. In a moment of temptation this week, feeling that sort of internal conviction in a temptation, am I going to give in to this or not? And this awareness, the risen Christ is here, present with me right now by, in the helper, in the Holy Spirit. Not just to take a note of my failures like elf on a shelf, but as my helper to help me hate sin and to turn from it and to help me love righteousness and obedience and to walk in it. Jesus is here near me, not just next to me, but indwelling me to help me walk in newness of life. The helper dwells in us to do all kinds of things. He's dwelling in you this morning to help you forgive someone that you have a hard time forgiving because they hurt you and you're not sure that you can do that. And he's helping you to not let roots of bitterness and resentment and anger fester and destroy your heart. The helper is dwelling in you to help you fight for joy because despair is sucking you to the bottom for another round this week. The helper is in you to help you be bold and not a coward in standing for Christ with your coworkers or with your family members who hate Jesus and, and disrespect you for, for believing in him. The helper dwells in you to help you do the hard work of restoring your broken, crumbling marriage or to restore relationships with your kids that are broken maybe because of what you've done. The helper is here to help us tip over our idols this week and to love God with all our heart and soul and mind and strength. Christ in you is much better than just Christ present with us. Although the beauty is one day when Jesus returns, we're going to get it all. Christ in us, Jesus will also be with us and every eye will see him and we'll be with the Lord forever. Amen? Yes. One last little beautiful benefit to Christ being in us here I think is embedded in verse 17 in what he says to Mary. Our union with Christ means that now Jesus is our brother and we can call God our father. She says, he says, go to my brothers and tell them I am ascending to my father and your father. To my God and your God. And for the first time in the Gospel of John, after over 250 times Jesus calls God his Father or the Father, he also now says to the disciples, he's your Father because you are in me and I call you brothers and sisters. You have access to the Father like I have access to the Father. And the Father loves you with the love that he has for me, the Son, and he will forever. And Mary followed his instructions. She went and she had the privilege of being the first one to, to, to give the spoiler. Jesus is alive. I've seen the Lord. We need to pray. I, I, by that I mean I want you to take some time to pray silently. Maybe in particular this morning 
with the reminder that Christ in, dwells in you. The Holy Spirit is, the, is your helper and you've been neglecting that help and just refusing to, to, to go to him for that help. Pray this morning. Ask him for help. How do you need the helper to invade your circumstances right now and to help you walk in your life? Let's pray.